The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. His politics were as important to him as his poetry. Although maybe for him, who famously asserted that poets were the unacknowledged legislators of the world, it was not an either-or, but a both-and. What causes did he take up in his day, and how did those affect his life and his work? What did he accomplish during his brief tenure on this planet? And is Matthew Arnold correct when he called him a, quote, beautiful and ineffectual angel, beating in the void his luminous wings in vain, end quote. Beautiful but ineffectual. Luminous wings to be beaten in vain in the void. All this from one of the greatest poets in English. Yet another doomed romantic poet. Percy Bysshe Shelley. Today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Percy Bysshe Shelley. Wowza! Maybe that should be the whole episode right there. (laughs) Percy Bysshe Shelley. Wowza! That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But it is daunting to take on these giants in only one hour or so of an episode, I read and read and read and try to condense, and then I think, no, no, I can't do it. I have to expand. But we could do 10 shows on Shelley, and to be honest, I'd end up doing a couple, but we'd have to move on because there's more to literature than just Shelley. And then a year from now or two years from now, I would return to Shelley and forget what we've already covered and not want to retrace old ground, etc., etc. Anyway, let's get to Shelley and stop moaning about the impossibility of really covering Shelley. It's like the big debate about whether the White Album should have been one really great album, as George Martin later said, or whether it's better as a two-disc record in all its woolly glory, not as produced as Sgt. Pepper or Abbey Road. And Paul just said, well, let's hear what Paul had to say about that. You know, I'm, I'm not a great one for that. You know, maybe it was too many of that. Look, what do you mean? It was great. It's sold. It's the bloody Beatles' White Album. Shut up. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I just realized that could be misinterpreted, my use of that clip. So let me be clear about how I intended to use that quote. I am not saying it's the History of Literature episode on Shelley. It's great. People downloaded it. Shut up. No, 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 no. Not at all. What I am saying is that I get overwhelmed thinking, well, what's important here? Is it Shelley's college years, his friendships with Keats and Byron, maybe his marriages, including to Mary Shelley, one of our October heroes? Spoiler alert, this year we're really diving into the life of Mary Shelley. Maybe it's Shelley's defense of poetry, a true landmark. We could do a whole episode on that. His radical politics. 
his brief life and tragic death, his lyric poetry, one of the greatest lyric poets who ever wrote in English, said Harold Bloom. Oh, Harold, we just can't quit you, can we? (laughs) Actually, Bloom's quote was, a superb craftsman, a lyric poet without rival, and surely one of the most advanced skeptical intellects ever to write a poem, end quote. So what do we do with a poet like Shelley? Maybe just run through one or two poems, Ozymandias, perhaps, which we've covered briefly here, or Ode to the West Wind, or a big one like Queen Mab, or Prometheus Unbound, or To a Skylark, or and or and or and or. Enough oars to row a fleet from Athens to Madagascar, which is pretty far, even if you take a shortcut through the Suez Canal, which may or may not be available to you, depending on what century you're in. And so with all those oars, Shelley goes on the list of, oh, can't do it, can't choose, how, 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 becomes not now, not now, not now, not yet, soon, surely sometime, but not yet. And the voice comes to me, Sounding just like Paul McCartney, but actually being Shelley's voice. Too much? You're complaining about having too much material? It was my life, it's my poetry, I'm Shelley, I'm great, deal with it, and shut up. <laughs> so that's the spirit of plunging forward. Shelley in one episode or two, why not? It's Shelley, he's awesome, you can't go wrong, don't overthink it too much, Jack Wilson, just plunge in. Today... Let's just run through the first half of his life, or the first half of his writing career, I should say. We'll run up to about age 25. He lived until, what, 29, 30? 29? We'll talk about his political causes. We'll hit some poems that are well-known, and some that are less so. We'll focus on the early years, and then... We'll shut up. I'll shut up. You can keep talking, dear listener, and Shelley will keep talking, too. He made sure of that with his poems. So I just got a new idea. Compare Shelley's poetry to the songs in the White Album. Match up one for one. See what happens. But then, as soon as I've had that thought, I think, right, that one can go on the list with Chaucer and the Magical Mystery Tour, which has been on the list of to-do episodes for about seven years. Maybe someday. Shelley was born in 1792, the year of the terror in the aftermath of the French Revolution, which is perhaps appropriate. The themes of turmoil and revolution would accompany him all his life. He died just 29 years later in a boating accident off the coast of Livorno, Tuscany. He made the most of his years, becoming one of the most admired and influential poets, even in an era of great poets though much of his fame came after his death. He was born to privilege. His grandfather, Bish Shelley, was a peer of the realm, or for those of us who need a little translation, that's basically as aristocratic as you can get outside the royal family. That's my understanding, anyway. He was rich, and he could sit in the House of Lords, and Percy Shelley, the eldest son of the eldest son, would one day inherit the family estate and sit in Parliament. As we will see, that was a destiny that hovered over him, but not one that would come to pass. Shelley's father, Timothy, was known as being kind of a weak person. He didn't know how to handle his father, Bish, who was overbearing, and he didn't know how to handle his son, who was rebellious. 
Percy Shelley, our poet, started his rebellion young. He had a joyous early life, devising games for his siblings. He had a brother and four sisters, spooking them with his ghost stories. He was a golden child in those earliest years, known by everyone to be the heir, beloved and admired by his sisters and parents and the servants too. And then he was sent off to school. How often is this the case in British history, or any history of any country, I guess? He was sent to school where he was taunted and bullied by the other kids, had a good home life, and then sent off to school. And for some reason, parents never broke that cycle. They were bullied themselves, and then they sent their own kids off to school to have the same thing happen. Shelley wasn't really ready for school or or for being bullied. He had a terrible temper but couldn't fight very well. Not a great combination kind of a recipe for being beaten up. He started when he was about 10 and was glad to get out of his first school at age 12 with only a few happy memories of some lectures on science that sparked his imagination. Sparked being a key word, electricity, chemistry, astronomy, all those skies and all that lightning. He was also a big fan of gothic thrillers. Well, why not? It was a world of darkness and candles and Big, empty mansions. It's what he was living in. Why not read about them, too? It was also a world of ideas. At his next school, the famed Eton College, Shelley got the nickname Mad Shelley and Shelley the Atheist. He was taught by a doctor who also happened to be the physician to the royal household and who opened up his library for Shelley to read. Philosophy, Gothic romances, Sir Walter Scott alongside scientific works, treatises on magic, and, of course, poetry. Shelley was at Eton College for six years. He started writing poetry, and he wrote a Gothic novel called Zastrozzi that was published. Both his poems and his novel were attacked for being immoral. It was not a good time to be an atheist in the eyes of critics, though he didn't seem to care much about that. He didn't bend to the marketplace, but then... Given his rich circumstances, he perhaps didn't need to bend. I wonder if his wealth actually bent him in the other direction, toward an anti-establishment position. Maybe due to guilt. He seems to have been frustrated by the world, as born rebels often are. The hypocrisy, the posers, the injustice, the difficulty in making a change. Here's our ineffectual angel beating his wings in the void. If you're devoted to truth and you're stinking rich, how do you reconcile your wealth with the suffering of others? Do you accept that a purportedly Christian society does not seem to be following the basic teachings of Christ? To love one another, to live lives of charity, to judge not lest ye be judged? Eye of the, cam- eye of the needle, camel through the eye of the needle, and all that. If you don't believe in God, do you pretend just to... Do you pretend that you do just to make things easier? Shelley didn't, which did not please his family. And then he fell in love with his cousin Harriet, and his family was upset about that too. His father had not quite realized what he had on his hands, though. Shelley graduated from Eton and went to Oxford, and when he got there, his father joined him and took him to some booksellers. He said, my son here has a literary turn. He is already an author, and do pray indulge him in his printing freaks. 
End quote. <laughs> that must be one of the great. <laughs> that must be one of the great quotes of a father of a famous author of all time. Indulge him in his printing freaks. Shelley repaid his father by publishing a pamphlet called The Necessity of Atheism. At Oxford, Shelley had befriended a man named Thomas Jefferson Hogg, who was kind of a wingman for Shelley's determined, rebellious tendencies. Hogg's father was concerned about his son for having an anarchical spirit, and he was assuaged by the idea that he was hanging around the right sort of person, Shelley being a blue blood and all. He had high hopes for that. Maybe that'll reform him. Nope. The two seems to seem to have encouraged one another, goaded each other into further and further extreme positions. The two published a volume of poems that included some strong anti-monarchical views. They also published Shelley's pamphlet, The Necessity of Atheism. I say published, I should say printed. They, they printed it out, and they sent copies of it to the conservative Oxford Dons. This got the, not enough just to, to, to write it and print it. They needed to get it in the eyes of the people to whom it would irritate the most. Sent copies of it to the conservative Oxford Dons, who responded by expelling the pair of them. Hogg seems to have felt some remorse for this, or at least he, he pretended to. He went along with his family's wishes, but Shelley refused to apologize to his family. Instead, he, a few months later, he eloped with another Harriet, a woman named Harriet Westbrook. This was not his cousin. His new bride was the daughter of a London tavern owner. Shelley had kind of an idea that he was going to educate her, bring her up to his level, intellectually speaking. He took off for Ireland with Harriet, where he tried fomenting rebellion against the established order, arguing for rights for Roman Catholics, Irish autonomy, and all his free-thinking ideas. He was 19 or 20. Harriet was only 16, and Harriet's sister came along with them. She was 29, much older than Percy Shelley. The three of them spent months in Ireland and then in North Wales trying to bring about change. Shelley wanted not just to write about change, but to make it happen. And yet he was learning that as a messenger or as a leader of the rebellion, he was in something of a bind. His efforts, frankly, were not that successful. He wrote an address to the Irish people, but it's been criticized on a number of grounds, that it purported to tell the Irish what they already knew, which was that they were oppressed. It also came across as condescending, coming from someone who was well-educated, came from posh people had grown up in a fancy home and could return to that home at any time. And maybe it was simply preaching to the converted. We can recognize now that Shelley's heart was in the right place. He was passionately against injustice and in favor of equality and so on all his life. He was committed to those causes for all 29 of his brief years. Warm-hearted and hot-headed was one biographer's description of him. But it's hard not to envision the young Shelley, who had not yet established himself as completely devoted to the cause, printing up copies of the address to the Irish people, distributing it to some pubs, which was good, but also another form of distribution was maybe not so good. 
flinging copies of it from his window down onto the heads of the masses of people walking by. Hmm. Then, a few weeks later, leaving Ireland disappointed. It's hard to hear that and not think, well, here's a guy who maybe had not yet found his true calling. He would come to influence through his poetry. Marx, for example, loved Queen Mab, which we're going to get to in a moment. But like poets all over the world, in all eras, Shelley felt compelled to do something. That's in all caps. More than just write poetry. But to take actual action. But in this, he was not well equipped or well positioned. One can imagine that a true application would have been to live for years in Ireland, let's say, to gain the respect and trust of the Irish by living among them in their conditions, to support as well as just preach from on high. And that was just not Shelley. He moved quickly. He was much more restless than that. If he hadn't written poetry, gorgeous poetry, undeniably great poetry, we would probably not consider him much more than a, a rich curiosity. Instead, we see Ireland and Italy and all the places like that as stops on Shelley's journey, fascinating because of the poetry that he was also writing and the life he was living as a poet, more so than the life he had as a political revolutionary, as important to him as that was. So there he was, married to the young Harriet. He was against marriage, actually, and it's not clear that he was truly in love with Harriet, but he kind of saw her as one of his causes, as I mentioned. He declared he would rescue her from her oppressive surroundings. But her sister Eliza came to oppress Shelley. Shelley had met the poet Robert Southey, and he'd met William Godwin, one of his political heroes. Godwin didn't totally approve of Shelley's stance on Ireland, by the way. He thought it might lead to violence, as it had in France during the Terror. Hogg was around again. I think I skipped over the part with Hogg. Hogg, Hogg's an interesting character. Shelley tried to set Hogg up with his sister, but instead Hogg fell in love with Shelley's wife. Not the last time this would happen. A pattern kind of developed in Shelley's life. Shelley was hopping around in a band of travelers usually traveled with two or three other people, trying to do some good in the world, running into financial difficulties, deeply involved in revolutionary politics, taking up radical positions in multiple directions, and writing poems. Let's briefly run through some of the political stances so we can spend the rest of our time talking about the poems. Shelley was an atheist, and he saw organized religion as one of the tools of social oppression. He attacked the priesthood and the monarchy and Christianity. He was in favor of free love. Nothing could be more studiously hostile to human happiness than marriage, he said. And when Hogg hit on Harriet, Shelley said, well, it was a horrible error. Yet he forgave Hogg and said, I get it and I'm not jealous. This is how people are. He believed that chastity was a monkish and evangelical superstition, quote unquote. He was against absolute monarchy. He was in favor of revolution, but against violent rebellion. He was for republicanism, Catholic emancipation, freedom of speech, and an end to aristocratic privilege. He believed in income and wealth equality. He was a vegetarian with a few lapses. He was the first translator of Plato in English who did not try to conceal the love between men including the love between older and younger men, the physical love. He wrote an essay about it, too. 
called A Discourse on the Manners of the Ancient Greeks Relative to the Subject of Love. Mary Shelley actually covered this essay up. It was left to her to publish much of Shelley's work posthumously, and she edited this one to avoid the controversial and and uh, controversial topic and the potential censorship that would have likely ensued. The essay was published a hundred years later. Shelley, in a lot of ways, was a hundred years ahead of his time. But let's return to where he was at age 20, and especially the poems he was writing. At that point, deep in his attempts to effectuate some change, the beautiful angel flapping his wings, writing poems in his quieter moments, the poems were not yet what he considered to be worthy. They were the work of a, a novice or an apprentice, someone getting better at his craft. But soon he would break through. By age 21, a few months shy of 22, he felt confident enough to publish Queen Mab generally considered his first major work. Let's take a quick break, then run through Queen Mab and more of Shelley's poetry. We'll also talk about his relationship with William Godwin and Godwin's daughter Mary, who became Shelley's wife, and who, of course, is of quite a bit of literary interest herself. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we are up to 1813. Shelley is 20, turning 21. And we have come to Queen Mab, his first major work. Previously, he'd published a couple of gothic novels, a few poems that he didn't really stand behind, one that he and Hogg put out, a volume of poetry that they claimed was written by someone else, and, of course, the pamphlets that had gotten him into some hot water, the necessity of atheism and an address to the Irish people being chief among them, a few other works, too. He was prolific, but it was not until Queen Mab that we really see something extended, an extended work with uh, vested with some, with what we might call greatness. Queen Mab is called a philosophical poem with notes, quote-unquote. I'm a little bit less interested in the ideas than the poetry, although without the idea, without the, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, because the ideas are sort of essential to the poem. It's about theory, Shelley's theory of revolution. He thought revolution would occur 
evil would lose, goodness would triumph, and people would become virtuous and set about establishing an idyllic society. This shouldn't happen all at once through violent means, but would arise through evolution, he thought. Queen Mab is a fairy who descends in a chariot to show the protagonist, a woman named Ianthe or Ianthe, the future utopian world. Ianthe has been sleeping on a couch, and Queen Mab is able to detach her soul-slash-spirit from her body, explain what she's been dreaming to her, and show her visions of the past, present, and future. Footnotes helpfully expound Shelley's ideas of atheism, vegetarianism, free love, and so on. There are some atheistic passages that sometimes got cut out by publishers, and even by Mary Shelley herself in one edition. Shelley never published the poem. He wrote it when he was 18 and had it privately printed a couple of years later. Mary Shelley gives us a guide to her late husband's efforts in the posthumous collection. She wrote the following, quote, He was animated to greater zeal by compassion for his fellow creatures. His sympathy was excited by the misery with which the world is bursting. He witnessed the sufferings of the poor and was aware of the evils of ignorance. He desired to induce every rich man to despoil himself of superfluity. Super... <laughs> Let me try that again. He desired to induce every rich man to despoil himself of superfluity and to create a brotherhood of property and service and was ready to be the first to lay down the advantages of his birth. He was of too uncompromising a disposition to join any party. He did not in his youth look forward to gradual improvement. Nay, in those days of intolerance, now almost forgotten, it seemed as easy to look forward to the sort of millennium of freedom and brotherhood which he thought the proper state of mankind as to the present reign of moderation and improvement. Ill health made him believe that his race would soon be run, that a year or two was all he had of life. He desired that these years should be useful and illustrious. He saw in a fervent call on his fellow creatures to share alike the blessings of the creation, to love and serve each other, the noblest work that life and time permitted him. In this spirit, he composed Queen Mab. End quote. Let's hear some of Queen Mab so we can get a sense of Shelley's style at this point. Shelley had numerous poems. He wrote numerous poems in multiple styles. The cadence and sonorousness are part of the pleasure. Let me say, first of all, that Queen Mab is not a Shelleyan invention. Queen Mab is one of the great literary fairies in our history of literature. She's in Shakespeare, in Romeo and Juliet, in fact. And then she shows up in a Ben Jonson poem and some other poems after that, too. She's in Sense and Sensibility by our beloved Jane Austen. We're working on the Persuasion episode, by the way, which I think is going to have two guests and come in three parts. Stay tuned for that. Queen Mab is a whole chapter in Moby Dick. She shows up in Peter Pan. And more recently, she's made her way into a comic book series called Hellboy. From Shakespeare to Hellboy. That's a pretty good pedigree there for Queen Mab. We will start at the beginning. There's a dedication to Harriet, his wife at the time, and then we get these lines. How wonderful is death, death and his brother sleep. 
One pale as yonder waning moon with lips of lurid blue, the other rosy as the morn when throned on ocean's wave. It blushes o'er the world, yet both so passing wonderful. Hath then the gloomy power, whose reign is in the tainted sepulchres, seized on her sinless soul? Must then that peerless form, which love and admiration cannot view without a beating heart, those azure veins which steal like streams along a field of snow, that lovely outline which is fair as breathing marble, perish? Must putrefaction's breath leave nothing of this heavenly sight but loathsomeness and ruin, spare nothing but a gloomy theme on which the lightest heart might moralize? Or is it only a sweet slumber, stealing or sensation, which the breath of roseate morning chaseth into darkness? Will Ianthe wake again, and give that faithful bosom joy whose sleepless spirit waits to catch light, life, and rapture from her smile? Yes, she will wake again, although her glowing limbs are motionless, and silent those sweet lips, once breathing eloquence that might have soothed a tiger's rage or thawed the cold heart of a conqueror. Her dewy eyes are closed, and on their lids, whose texture fine scarce hides the dark blue orbs beneath, the baby's sleep is pillowed. Her golden tresses shade the bosom's stainless pride, curling like tendrils of the parasite around a marble column. Hark! Whence that rushing sound? Tis like the wondrous strain that round a lonely ruin swells, which, wandering on the echoing shore, the enthusiast hears at evening. Tis softer than the west wind's sigh, tis wilder than the unmeasured notes of that strange lyre whose strings the genie of the breezes sweep. Those lines of rainbow light are like the moonbeams when they fall through some cathedral window, but the tints are, are such as may not find comparison on earth. Behold the chariot of the fairy queen. Celestial coursers paw the unyielding air. Their filmy pennons at her word they furl and stop obedient to the reins of light. These the queen of spells drew in. She spread a charm around the spot and leaning graceful from the ethereal car, long did she gaze and silently upon the slumbering maid. Oh, not the visioned poet in his dreams, when silvery clouds float through the wildered brain, when every sight of lovely, wild, and grand astonishes, enraptures, elevates, when fancy at a glance combines the wondrous and the beautiful. So bright, so fair, so wild a shape hath ever yet beheld, as that which reigned the coursers of the air and poured the magic of her gaze upon the maiden's sleep. There we go. Essentially, we have unrhymed iambic pentameter, a.k.a. blank verse, a.k.a. the mighty line, as it's been called. It's readable, beautiful, understandable, propulsive, and we haven't yet gotten to the visions or the dreams or the glimpses of the future or the philosophical thoughts or the disquisitions on eating a natural diet. We will move forward and leave those delights to you dear reader. A few more notes. Shelley and Harriet named their first child Ianthe, like the character in Queen Mab. Shelley had the somewhat curious idea that poetry protected him from censorship. 
That was the idea behind a philosophical poem with notes. A poem is safe, he told the printers of Queen Mab. The iron-souled attorney general would scarcely dare to attack. Maybe he was right, but to make sure that he was understood, he included those notes, giving, delivering in uh, a more digestible form his ideas alongside the poetry. In any case, we can see what an impact his poem had. Pirated copies began to appear, and Shelley became a hero to radicals throughout the 1830s and 1840s. Marx, as I said, was a big fan of Queen Mab. Engels translated the poem and sold it at socialist meetings. According to Marx's daughter, Marx said Shelley was, quote, essentially a revolutionary, end quote, and would have been on the advanced guard of socialism had he lived. That's an interesting idea. Remember that Shelley died in 1822 at the age of 29. Marx was four years old at the time. Shelley would have been in his 50s and 60s when Marx came to London. It's one of the great what-ifs in history. Who knows where Shelley would have been at that point in his intellectual and political journey. Maybe he'd have been a, a proponent of Marx, or maybe he'd have changed his views. Maybe he'd have influenced Marx in some way, or vice versa. Maybe he'd have been in Parliament. It's easy to imagine that the two would have met. While we don't know how Shelley would have been as an elder statesman advising younger revolutionaries, we do have this relationship in reverse, so to speak. Shelley, the young man, who would go to see William Godwin, one of his heroes. Godwin, of course, was the husband of Mary Wollstonecraft, who had died years before. We have a good episode on Mary Wollstonecraft with one of her biographers, a novelist, who wrote about Mary Shelley, the birth of Mary Shelley and Mary Wollstonecraft, the first 10 days of her life, and all about how Mary, she uh, Mary Wollstonecraft died basically in the years, in the days, I should say, after Mary Shelley was born. Wollstonecraft wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women, among other essays, which Shelley admired, and he admired Godwin, who was a journalist, a philosopher, and a novelist, whose tastes ran toward utilitarianism and anarchism. He attacked political institutions. All this was mother's milk for Shelley, who drank it in in great gulps. And Mary Shelley as the product of these two great minds. It's not hard to see why he fell for her. And by product, I don't just mean offspring. I mean she was well-equipped by her reading and her immersion in the world of ideas. Percy had in mind with Harriet, his wife, that he would mold her into someone who could understand and share his views. Mary Shelley already had views. And what was even better, they weren't necessarily Shelley's. She argued with Shelley. She was an independent thinker. Shelley was married, but that was no real obstacle for a free thinker like Shelley. He devised a scheme whereby he would replace Harriet with Mary and let Harriet live with the pair of them, no longer the primary object of his love, but more like a sister rather than a wife. And naively, he thought Godwin, Mary's father, who was an advocate of free love, after all, would approve. Godwin thought it was a horrible idea. Harriet, the wife, didn't like it much either, so Shelley and Mary eloped, took their friend Jane Claremont with them, grabbed a boat to Calais, went to Paris and Switzerland, and lasted there for six weeks before running out of money. 
They all returned to London, where nobody was happy with them, and the Godwins, William and his new wife, were furious. Harriet gave birth to another child of Shelley's, and Mary gave birth to a child of Shelley's also, who died. And of all things, Hogg showed up, the old friend Thomas Jefferson Hogg, and he fell in love with Mary. It looks like free love was at its peak in those days. According to some biographers, Hogg wanted to sleep with Mary, and Shelley encouraged it. And Mary agreed to try it as an experiment, and off they went, loving freely, until Mary Shelley lost interest in Hogg. It's probably no surprise that Shelley didn't write many poems that have lasted in these years. He was scrambling to pay creditors, deal with his ex-wife Harriet, deal with a new paramour, his beloved Mary, deal with an old friend turned suitor of his wife, (laughs) Deal with a beloved father-in-law, a respected, revered father-in-law who turned into something like an enemy. He did find time to write a dialogue attacking religious beliefs and the church, which is so Shelley. Atheism was the only rational ground to stand upon, he thought, so why not say so? Even if the world already treating you cruelly would punish you further for saying it out loud. In 1815, Shelley's grandfather died, which helped his situation by opening up some funds for him. Now he could write again, and his poetry was getting better. His next great work, Alastor, or The Spirit of Solitude and Other Poems, which came out in 1816, was influenced by Wordsworth, in particular Wordsworth's The Excursion. It was more personal than Shelley's previous works. It was autobiographical, and Shelley was living the kind of life that produced rich source material. I'm reminded, not for the first time, of John Lennon. Here we go. (laughs) How many Beatles references in one episode? Ah, Indulge me, dear listeners. I'm reminded of John Lennon and the Ballad of John and Yoko. Alastor is not quite the ballad of Percy and Mary, but Shelley does pull in his assailants, put them in his verse... It's clear that he was feeling the pressure from all sides, and he responded by transcending the mundane with art. What's especially interesting about Alastor is that the narrator holds two types of poetry, or two types of poet, and he holds them both at once and pulls them into a sort of debate with one another. There is the poet of nature, a la Wordsworth, who gazes at meadows or mountains and recollects emotions in tranquility. The other kind of poet is the wild visionary genius, Milton, let's say, or Blake. And Shelley's poet is caught between the two, trying to become kind of both, fusing them both together, alienated, wandering, seeing the world as it should be, revolutionizing, but also struck by nature and its beauties and willing to write reveries about that too. Think about what this means to unite both of these impulses in one. Every time you read a beautiful poem about a sunset, you might make a note to yourself, well, okay, but this isn't all that practical, is it? This isn't going to put food on anyone's table or help the oppressed people living under the crushing weight of illiberal forces. And yet, at the same time, when you read a more political poem, when you read those utopian visions and read politics and 
arguments about which bills should pass and why the Irish should be free and why the church's latest position on this or that is untenable, you think, well, okay, fine, but this isn't really all that universal, is it? It's kind of rooted in a time and a place. It has an agenda. It's good to be in the fight. It's interesting to see this at work. But what about the moon and the sun and the stars and the sea? What about humans just going about their business, trying to live a life? It can't all be politics and revolution, can it? Aren't we, aren't we seeking the answers to universal questions? Aren't we also trying to find out who we are and what it all means and enjoy beauty and truth where we can find it? Not necessarily in the positions of parliament, but the connections we make with the people close by to us and the, and the fish and the fowl and the stones and the trees and the wind as it pushes our hair from one side to the other. And Shelley says, both and please. You don't limit yourself in Shelley's conception of poetry. Poets, in Shelley's view, are going to poet. It's big-time poetry. Poetus Maximus. We're now in 1816, and things are really heating up in the Shelley world. Percy and Mary aren't with Jane anymore. Instead, they're with Jane's sister, another friend of Mary's named Claire Claremont. Mary has a baby with Percy, whom they name William, and Claire throws herself at Lord Byron and becomes his mistress. He's recently separated and headed for Lake Geneva. Claire talks Percy and Mary into joining her for a diversion from their planned trip to Italy, to Switzerland, so they can all hang out together. And you know what happens there, I'm sure. Byron is about to propose that everyone should write a ghost story, and his physician, Dr. John Polidori, writes what is probably the first important vampire story in English. Mary Shelley writes Frankenstein, and Shelley himself would write a preface to Frankenstein when the book is published a couple of years later. Now, I can see by the clock on the wall we are not going to get to the end here in one episode, and in fact, we have a Mar an episode on Mary Shelley coming up, so maybe we're at a good stopping point in our narrative of Shelley's life. We can resume Shelley's life with the trip to Lake Geneva and the post-Frankenstein years that he had. But in any case, let's take a quick break. We're not done. Take a quick break, our last one, and then we'll hear some of Shelley's poetry from this year, 1816. When he's finally free of his money woes, at least in part, he's invigorated by his relationship with Mary Shelley, his intellectual equal. He's meeting up with Byron, and he's influenced by this idea that a poet can be both a Wordsworthian autobiographical appreciator of nature and a firebombing radical visionary genius. Let's start with Shelley's poem, Hymn to Intellectual Beauty. It's often compared to Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey, which, why don't we hear a few of those lines so we can put this in some context. Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey poem, very famous, which, as you may recall, begins with these lines. Five years have passed, five summers, with the length of five long winters, and again I hear these waters rolling from their mountain springs with a soft inland murmur. 
Once again do I behold these steep and lofty cliffs that on a wild secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion and connect the landscape with the quiet of the sky. That's Wordsworth. Shelley has just written Alastor, which is not like this at all, really. Alastor is a wild story. Let me give you a taste of that before we get to him of intellectual, what is it? <laughs> him, to in, him to intellectual beauty. This is from Alastor. In Alastor, the poet is falling asleep in Kashmir and has a vision of a maiden who approaches him. Listen to these wild, quasi-erotic lines. We're a long way from Wordsworth here. Beside a sparkling rivulet, he stretched his languid limbs. A vision on his sleep there came, a dream of hopes that never yet had flushed his cheek. He dreamed a veiled maid sat near him talking in low, solemn tones. Her voice was like the voice of his own soul, heard in the calm of thought, its music long, like woven sounds of streams and breezes, held his inmost sense suspended in its web of many-colored woof and shifting hues. Knowledge and truth and virtue were her theme, and lofty hopes of divine liberty, thoughts the most dear to him, and poesy, herself, a poet. Soon the solemn mood of her pure mind kindled through all her frame a permeating fire. Wild numbers then she raised, with voice stifled in tremulous sobs, subdued by its own pathos. Her fair hands were bare alone, sweeping from some strange harp, strange symphony. And in their branching veins the eloquent blood told an ineffable tale. The beating of her heart was heard to fill the pauses of her music, and her breath tumultuously accorded with those fits of intermitted song. Suddenly she rose, as if her heart impatiently endured its bursting burden. At the sound he turned and saw by the warm light of their own life her glowing limbs beneath the sinuous veil of woven wind her outspread arms now bare, her dark locks floating in the breath of night, her beamy bending eyes, her parted lips outstretched and pale and quivering eagerly. His strong heart sunk and sickened with excess of love. He reared his shuddering limbs and quelled his gasping breath and spread his arms to meet her panting bosom. She drew back a while, then... Yielding to the irresistible joy, with frantic gesture and short breathless cry, folded his frame in her dissolving arms. Now blackness veiled his dizzy eyes, and night involved and swallowed up the vision. Sleep, like a dark flood suspended in its course, rolled back its impulse on his vacant brain. That's from Alastor. But hymn to intellectual beauty... And Mont Blanc, and, or Mont Blanc, maybe I should say, and Mutability, and to Wordsworth, those are the final poems we're going to hear today, are more Wordsworthian. The poet is in control. It isn't a, a visionary, crazy visionary native. It's not a vision of an idyllic future. It's not a rant or a screed or a political argument. It's the poet contemplating nature and internalizing thoughts, thinking through ideas of life and poetry, and communicating to us, delivering those ideas in beautiful verse. 
So first we'll have him to intellectual beauty, or as Flannery O'Connor might say, intellectual. Intellectual beauty. Maybe that's Shelley's answer to Wordsworth. His view of nature is a bit different from Wordsworth's. Also his view of Christianity. Faith, hope, and love. That's the, the key to Christianity, right? Well, that gets a bit modified here. Hope, love, and not faith. I won't spoil it. You'll hear when I read the excerpt. What should we listen for here? Shelley is re- listen for Shelley wrestling with the ideas of nature and what nature inspires in us and what we in turn ascribe to nature. Humans have imaginative power. They sometimes Im- impose that on nature, vesting natural phenomenon with spirits, with concepts. We reach for concepts like the soul or ghosts or demons or heaven because we need those concepts. We need them to explain our existence, which is full of mysteries. But also, we use those concepts to communicate our unspoken feelings. When you see something dramatic and you're overwhelmed by beauty, you invent, you imagine, your creativity is engaged whether you're writing a poem or imagining a goddess or a god, for that matter, a creator who could put together this gorgeous blue sky, this stunning moon, this incredible moon, and this earthly female form, this unearthly female form with the smooth skin and penetrating eyes and shapely curves that have melted all the bones in your body. Your heart beats with beauty. Your mind races to comprehend and organize and live up to what you see. Listen to Shelley wrestling with those ideas and what they mean for him. This is Him to Intellectual Beauty. The awful shadow of some unseen power floats, though unseen among us, visiting this various world with as inconstant wing as summer winds that creep from flower to flower, like moonbeams that behind some piney mountain shower, it visits with inconstant glance each human heart and countenance. Like hues and harmonies of evening, like clouds in starlight widely spread, like memory of music fled, like aught that for its grace may be dear, and yet dearer for its mystery. Spirit of Beauty that dost consecrate with thine own hues all thou dost shine upon, of human thought or form, where art thou gone? Why dost thou pass away and leave our state, this dim vast veil of tears, vacant and desolate? Ask why the sunlight not forever weaves rainbows o'er yon mountain river. Why aught should fail and fade that once is shown? Why fear and dream and death and birth cast on the daylight of this earth such gloom? Why man has such a scope for love and hate, despondency and hope? No voice from some sublimer world hath ever to sage or poet these responses given. Therefore the names of demon, ghost, and heaven remain the records of their vain endeavor. Frail spells whose uttered charm might not avail to sever. From all we hear and all we see, doubt, chance, and mutability. Thy light alone, like mist or mountains driven, or music by the night wind sent through strings of some still instrument, or moonlight on a midnight stream, gives grace and truth to life's unquiet dream. 
love, hope, and self-esteem, like clouds depart and come for some uncertain moments lent. Man were immortal and omnipotent. Didst thou, unknown and awful as thou art, keep with thy glorious train firm state within his heart. Thou messenger of sympathies that wax and wane in lovers' eyes, thou that to human thought art nourishment, like darkness to a dying flame. Depart not as thy shadow came, depart not, lest the grave should be, like life and fear, a dark reality. While yet a boy I sought for ghosts, and sped through many a listening chamber, cave and ruin, and starlight wood, with fearful steps pursuing hopes of high talk with the departed dead. I called on poisonous names with which our youth is fed. I was not heard. I saw them not. When musing deeply on the lot of life, at that sweet time when winds are wooing, all vital things that wake to bring, news of birds and blossoming, sudden thy shadow fell on me. I shrieked and clasped my hands in ecstasy. I vowed that I would dedicate my powers to thee and thine. Have I not kept the vow? With beating heart and streaming eyes, even now I call the phantoms of a thousand hours, each from his voiceless grave. They have envisioned bowers of studious zeal or love's delight, outwatched with me the envious night. They know that never joy illumed my brow, unlinked with hope that thou wouldst free this world from its dark slavery that thou, O awful loveliness, wouldst give whate'er these words cannot express. The day becomes more solemn and serene when noon is past. There is a harmony in autumn and a luster in its sky, which through the summer is not heard or seen, as if it could not be, as if it had not been. Thus let thy power, which like the truth of nature on my passive youth, descended, to my onward life supply its calm to one who worships thee and every form containing thee whom spirit fair thy spells did bind to fear himself and love all humankind hmm our next poem picks up many of these themes that's one great thing about the compressed time period in which these poems were written where they were written months and weeks and days apart. The poems all kind of rhyme with one another. There are little references and concepts and words that you see repeated here and there, giving us, you and me, a lot of room to work. They're like handholds in a cliff. We can move from one to the other and make our way from point A to point B by grabbing these helpful iron rings that Shelley has left behind embedded into the stone. Next up, mutability. We heard that word in the last poem. Shelley had multiple poems called mutability. Speaking of handholds, that's one of them. How did, she, how did Shelley's idea of mutability change over time? He was obsessed with the idea. So this poem, because there are so many poems called mutability or multiple poems, this one's also known by its first line, we are as clouds that veil the midnight moon. And if you're feeling the familiar music of that line, we are as clouds that veil the midnight moon. It's once again the mighty line, iambic pentameter. It's as natural to readers of poetry in English as a dip in the swimming pool on a warm day or taking a hot shower on a cold one. Ah, yes, our old friend, 
iambic pentameter. It's the line that makes you sit up straight, puff out your chest a bit, lift up your chin, face the world. Here is someone with something to say. Again, we're in 1816. Mutability. We are as clouds that veil the midnight moon. One. We are as clouds that veil the midnight moon. How restlessly they speed and gleam and quiver, streaking the darkness radiantly. Yet soon night closes round, and they are lost forever. Two. Or like forgotten lyres whose dissonant strings give various response to each varying blast, to whose frail, frail frame no second motion brings one mood or modulation like the last. Three. We rest. A dream has power to poison sleep. We rise. One wandering thought pollutes the day. We feel, conceive, or reason, laugh, or weep, embrace fond woe, or cast our cares away. For it is the same. For be it joy or sorrow, the path of its departure still is free. Man's yesterday may ne'er be like his morrow. Naught may endure but mutability. Mm, okay, beautiful little poem. Where are we with this? Things change. Nothing endures but the fact that everything changes. It's not a new idea. Hello, Heraclitus. <laughs> River stepper in 500 BC. But there's something newish in the poetry, at least to my mind. The metaphors feel fresh. What's not fresh? What would not be fresh in a poem about mutability, the constancy of change, snowflakes, maybe, fingerprints? Shelley probably wouldn't have chosen either of those, but today's poet might reach for those first. Say, everything is different, like a snowflake. Everything is transient, like a snowflake. He would. Today's poet might reach for those, hopefully to reject them as being a bit too familiar. Shelley has a different idea. He says, we're like old liars with strings. Dissonance now because of the age. Blasted into making a sound. Jangling, dissonant, not ever really playing the same sound. On this old instrument, the first metaphor he uses is gorgeous. Clouds that veil the midnight moon. Try seeing those twice. They change before your eyes and are gone forever. Is that like human existence? It's so beautiful, I almost hope that it is. It's transitory, for sure. Meaning, we're all doomed. There's melancholy in that realization. It's not exciting to be unique and doomed. Well, it is exciting, but it's not just exciting. Think of all the snowflakes that have melted and will never, ever be seen again. That's crushing, isn't it? Or is it beautiful? How about crushing? What about the really good ones? The really good snowflakes? What about the ones that no one ever sees up close? What good is all this beauty when it's unappreciated by anyone? Who even sees all the snowflakes, let alone appreciates them? That's a sobering thought for any human looking ahead a hundred years or so. You will melt, my friends, and not make a mark, most likely. Do you think you're different? Okay, Barack Obama, if you're listening today, okay, fine. You can think that you're different. You made a mark, for sure. But in a thousand years, 
who will know your name. In 10,000, you will be as melted as the rest of us. Maybe there's a beauty in that. Be beautiful. Seize the day. Experience the joy within your heart, as my yoga instructor says in her accented voice. Make this practice an offering. Celebrate. The third stanza helps us do that, even though it might not seem that way at first. We rest, and a dream has power to poison sleep. Why poison? A dream has power to make sleep good, too, right? To sweeten sleep. Then it says we rise. One wandering thought pollutes the day. Why pollute? Why not say one wandering thought cleanses the day? Because I think Shelley is saying even the bad stuff is important to note. You can't ever have a perfect day, an ideal day. It's always beyond reach. At some point, things will break down and you'll have that disruption. That is the point. The surface of the water of life is not perfectly smooth. There will always be a ripple. And the ripple means there's change and change is inevitable. And we live with mutability and we need to find the beauty in that, in change. That's the part we have to embrace. You have a perfect day? Well, yes, but you're going to die. (laughs) It's a wonderful goddamn poem. Are poems part of mutability? Aren't they locked in, frozen in time, etched in stone, so to speak? Don't they resist mutability? Aren't poems the capturing of the butterflies of thought and pinning them to the page? Ah, One would like to think so, wouldn't one? But aha, you are a step ahead of me, I can tell. Dear listener, you're saying... But the poems will never be read the same way twice. The person reading them will always be different, in a different frame of mind, perceiving things differently, noticing different words. The words themselves change too over time. And our percipient observer will absorb the poem in a different way, depending on the year, the month, the day, the hour, the second in which the poem is being read. You say that because you're a step ahead of me and you're talking to yourself. But meanwhile, I have moved on to the next poem, and you fail to notice. Dear listener, if you're going to get ahead of me and think your own thoughts, sometimes you need to stop and make sure I didn't swerve while you were off on your own. We're running short on time, so I'll just give you excerpts from Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc is the highest mountain of the Alps, for Shelley, as with any of the Romantics. You have to consider their view of the sublime whenever you're looking at mountains or storms or any of the strong nature we so often associate with these poets. Strong, by that I mean potentially fierce, capable of inspiring awe and terror. That's the sublime. If you're a shepherd gazing at a peaceful meadow, you're not in touch with the romantic conception of the sublime. Beauty, maybe, tranquility, and maybe grace, but not the sublime. The sublime is lightning shocking the sky above the windswept moors, being small and naked and alone and terrified as the hail rains down on the roof. Or feeling your heart rising up into your throat as you stand small and stare at the thundering waterfall that could pound you into oblivion should you happen to slip. Nature in extremis. This is part one. Mont Blanc, lines written in the veil of Charmouni. The everlasting universe of things flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves, now dark, now glittering, now reflecting gloom, 
now lending splendor, where from secret springs the source of human thought its tribute brings of waters, with a sound but half its own, such as a feeble brook will oft assume, in the wild woods among the mountains lone, where waterfalls around it leap forever, where woods and winds contend, and a vast river over its rocks ceaselessly bursts and raves. Mm. Mm. Love that. This is part five, the conclusion of Mont Blanc, where we see the mountain. Mont Blanc yet gleams on high. The power is there, the still and solemn power of many sights and many sounds and much of life and death. In the calm darkness of the moonless nights, in the lone glare of day, the snows descend upon that mountain. None beholds them there, nor when the flakes burn in the sinking sun, or the star beams dart through them. Winds contend silently there, and heap the snow with breath rapid and strong, but silently. Its home, the voiceless lightning in these solitudes, keeps innocently, and like vapor, broods over the snow. The secret strength of things which governs thought, and to the infinite dome of heaven is as a law inhabits thee. And what were thou, and earth, and stars, and sea, if to the human mind's imaginings, silence and solitude were vacancy? You can hear how Wordsworth has crept in, and so, perhaps, it is fitting that we conclude with Shelley's poem, to Wordsworth. Remember that Wordsworth was a hero to these second-wave romantic poets, Myron and, and Shelley and Keats. The young Wordsworth was, anyway, but by the time they came of age, Wordsworth had gotten older and he had changed. He was no longer the radical poet that he had been as a young man. He was now viewed as part of the backlash against the forces of progress. And so you will hear Shelley's Shelley, who fought for change all his life. You can hear his reverence and his disappointment. We have a lot more Shelley poems to cover in our next episode on Shelley. Part two, we'll have West Winds and Skylarks and Ozymandias and Prometheus and more. Clouds, masks, the moon, the moon at least twice, probably more. That's in Shelley's mid to late 20s. We'll talk more about Mary Shelley and we'll talk about Byron and Keats and we'll talk about Shelley's death in the next one. But for now listen to this devoted poet in his early 20s as he comes to grips with his vocation, his vocation as a poet, his calling, and he addresses his respect for the great poet Wordsworth, his respect for what Wordsworth once was, and his deep sorrow for what he had become. To Wordsworth. Poet of nature, thou hast wept to know that things depart which never may return. Childhood and youth, friendship and love's first glow, have fled like sweet dreams, leaving thee to mourn. These common woes I feel, one loss is mine which thou too feelst, yet I alone deplore. Thou wert as a lone star, whose light did shine on some frail bark in winter's midnight roar. Thou hast like to a rock-built refuge stood above the blind and battling multitude, in honored poverty, thy voice did weave songs consecrate to truth and liberty. Deserting these, thou leavest me to grieve. Thus having been, 
that thou shouldst cease to be. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Percy Bysshe Shelley and his crew of characters for giving us some good material today. We will have the second half of his life, including some wonderful poetry. Next week, we'll look at Bad Hamlet and have some thoughts on method acting with an expert on both of those things. And we'll have Emma's pick. What do you think that could be here in October? I'll give you a hint. It starts with an Edgar and ends with a Poe, with an Allen in the middle. How delicious. We also have some biographers coming up. Kurt Vonnegut and Lewis Carroll. Actually, we might have some of those first. got to check the calendar. I think I might be screwing this up. Yes, we're going to have Lady Chatterley's lover and Lewis Carroll will be next week. And after that, we'll have Bad Hamlet and Emma's pick with our surprise guest. Not so surprised, EAP. <laughs> and then we'll have Mary Shelley and maybe a little Dostoevsky if we can squeeze him in. And one of the craziest literary stories out there involving murder and mayhem. Please do subscribe so you don't miss any of that. I am Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>